Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. In our latest issue, Michael Koreski wrote a feature on musicals past and present. As Hollywood's infrastructure and its sources of talent have radically changed, so too have the look and feel of this technically complex genre. With an eye to both the past and future, I was joined by Andrew Chan, and I'm the web editor for the Criterion Collection, and I've been writing for Film Comet for about 10 years now. Eric Hines, I'm associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image, and I also am a writer for Film Comet. And Michael Koreski, I'm editorial director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. To discuss a few musicals we each selected, one classic, the other boundary pushing. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you all for coming to this podcast, which is about musicals. Uh, I will try not to do the Oprah singing voice thing, but I promise nothing. Uh, Michael wrote a great feature in the new issue about recent movie musicals. It starts with a very recent, very much discussed one, and then it brings in the history of the musical to talk about it. A movie I will probably die without seeing, and I'm fine with that. La La Land. Well, I guess the motivation for writing it was that I felt that the film hadn't properly been discussed as a musical. Mm -hmm. The movie became a political hot button talking point, really, because of the Oscars. Everyone's comparing La La Land to Moonlight. Well, also the jazz thing. Well, and and then because of that, because of the themes of the film, there are all sorts of questions about its representations of race and its representations of jazz music. And basically the movie became something greater than itself, which is always too much for any film to bear. And I felt that my response to the film was that I, I never loved it nor hated it. Mm-hmm. And that's always worth investigating. Though people seem to feel the other way. You have to love something or hate something. And that's certainly how the film was uh, talked about. Certainly on film, Twitter, and other places. Other hellholes. <laughs> right. Other notable hellholes. So I felt it might be interesting to actually look at it as a musical and what that means. Unlike you, Violet, I've seen it not just once, but many times oh at my this God. point, which some people you know, thought it was a great sacrifice I made. I don't hate the film at all, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't love the film. I think there are some really interesting things about it. I think to, to not recognize the craft of certain things about it is to just be foolish. Mm-hmm. And um, in looking at it closer, I saw a lot of ways that it both plays into the tradition of the American musical very nicely and in ways that it deviates pretty sharply and things that are sort of dreadful about it and things that are great about it. But the thing that interested me most was just looking at it in the new landscape of the American musical in which the performers on screen are amateurs. And that is um, not just lauded, but it's the point almost. Where And so you're watching these films, whether it's Les Miserables or Into the Woods or any of these recent musicals, and you're almost on the edge of your seat wondering, can these non-musical performers pull it off? And if they do, what an amazing feat. We have to give them all the Oscars because they actually they managed to do something that was like above their pay grade, mm-hmm. whereas opposed to watching a classic Hollywood musical, there's never the sense of the possibility of utter failure. You're not going to watch Judy Garland or Mickey Rooney or Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire and think uh, this this thing could just fall flat in its face. I mean, mm-hmm. there's the level of professionalism was so great. And then, of course, the industry itself was in place the Hollywood industry to support these kinds right. of films and that doesn't exist anymore. So La La Land does have to work with what it has, but I just thought I just wanted to explore that. Yeah. 
there was this infrastructure and, you know, the great sort of contradiction about musicals. They're inherently patriotic. You know, it's the great American songbook. But then also there are all these other elements where it's, you know, it's incorporating gayness, new, new musical forms like jazz, celebrating certain things that aren't necessarily associated with like cheesy Americana and um, even just like Jewishness, just the prevalence of like Irving Berlin. Ira Gershwin shaping that and you know it's interesting to see like the evolution because obviously these came about with the advent of sound and originally they were sort of like adaptations of Follies type right and know, because of that you had these stage performers you had Marie Chevalier mm-hmm. um, and, and um, you know Dick Powell people yeah. like that in the early years of the right. musical um, now we have Ryan Gosling which is no slug on him, no. but it's a it's a, something to say about the industry. Right. Because again, I mean, you mentioned Judy Garland and she's one of the, you know, if we're talking about the platonic ideal of musicals, like she grew up in a showbiz family. She came of age performing, doing vaudeville stuff, and then she just into the movies. And then her life was ruined by her career um, and other studio machinations. But like just the importance of her in something like The Wizard of Oz, where there's this turning point away from these showbiz backstage musicals or like these weird Busby Berkeley fantasias and turning into incorporating the songs into the narrative and how these songs had a dramatic purpose in and of themselves and then they also related to the narrative in interesting ways. And all the way songs are incorporated into into musicals over the years, it just keeps evolving and changing and I think we're in an interesting place now with that, uh, not with La La Land, but with other musicals, musicals that actually do push the form ahead. Mus- the th- another point that I make, and I don't want to go too into it too much, but is that La La Land doesn't even try to be progressive. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it's not politically progressive, but in that way, it's actually falling into line with a lot of, of the classical Hollywood films, uh, the musicals. I mean, I was thinking like Babes in Arms is something that I always yeah. cite, this Busby Berkeley directed film with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney from 1939, which is this... Um, truly bizarre film a lot of great musical numbers in it obviously two astonishing performers but the whole plot is predicated on these rebellious kids who are going to stick it to their parents their conservative parents by putting on a show and they're going to really show them what it is and then when the show happens it turns out to be a minstrel show old dixie blackface full-on blackface yeah so that's an interesting parallel with la la land in a way not to be too extreme about it Mm -hmm. but all the questions around la la land all the race questions about it that it is a movie about jazz exclusively about white people in Los Angeles and the, the black characters are sort of sidelined and almost in a sense villainized except that the narrative is so kind of uh, ambiguously crafted that you can't quite tell what its point of view is mm-hmm. um, but it's always been conservative in a way yeah. the, even Singing in the Rain it's looking back at earlier times and it's saying that the you know the things changing is not necessarily a good thing right um, well they got rid of the annoying woman with the Bronx accent Gene Hagen? Yes. I guess we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. But so today we're not going to be talking about La La Land, thank God, because like I said, I didn't see it. But instead, we're going to be talking about classic musicals that, you know, help define the genre and then also musicals that are really pushing the form forward and doing interesting things with music. So, Andrew, why don't you start with your classic musical? So my classic musical is Singing in the Rain, which mm-hmm. is pretty much the cream of the crop. I first saw it in middle school, and I just vividly remember that the AFI list of 100 Best Movies came out right around that time, and I saw that it was number 10 on that list, and so I knew that I had to seek it out. And I did not grow up watching musicals. I wasn't super exposed to them, and so it was something really new for me. And I think what's really continued to astound me, it's still one of my favorite films, is that it is just this pure expression of bliss. 
And, you know, when you're young, you're taught that in order to experience real happiness, you sort of have to take the bitter and the sweet. And Mm -hmm. for me, this film is sort of a refutation of that because it is just this relentless joy machine. And insofar as there are conflicts, I mean, the film doesn't really take them seriously at all and almost to the point where they don't even exist. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, insofar as there are conflicts, they are solved by singing and dancing and then more singing and more dancing and i think that's sort of what sets singing in the rain and other freed unit um golden age musicals apart from contemporary counterparts is that they celebrate talent but then also recognize that musical talent has utility mm-hmm. almost like to the point where a human body or a human voice can be choreographed and disciplined to the point where it can become a problem-solving tool. Mm. Like you have scenes where, you know, the scene where Donald O'Connor is trying to comfort um, Gene Kelly who feels that he's not a good actor and then he just launches into this virtuosic sequence. Or when it comes to the failed sound film The Dueling Cavalier, they're just going to add a superfluous dance sequence in it and it's going to become a hit. So there's that, and also not just that singing and dancing have utility, but that they are normal, and that singing and dancing talent is ubiquitous. It's like not something special, and it's almost uh, seen as a precondition to being human. Mm -hmm. And so you have the woman with the Bronx accent, Jean Hagen, (laughs) Lena Lamont, who ends up being the film's villain and pariah because she can't sing and she can't dance. And so she's sort of excluded from the world of the human. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's this sort of, I I love that the film makes this sort of perverse but delicious equation between musical talentlessness and moral and intellectual inferiority. Um, but then it invites you in too, you know, even if you don't know how to sing or dance, you feel included in that vision. And not to go on too long, but I was sort of thinking, what makes this movie profound? Because I truly believe that every masterpiece is a work of profundity. And on the face of it, you know, there's nothing more superficial than a musical, you know, it's a movie about people just making a spectacle of themselves in public space public spaces Mm -hmm. and there's not really that much more but I was thinking about something that Cornell West always says he he made this analogy sort of comparing vocal harmony to political coalition building and I always sort of thought that was a specious argument but as it's sort of stuck with me and sort of continues to actually ring a little true for me I think about it in terms of the musical, you know, musicals are, as you say in your piece, they're sort of these expressions of utopia. Um, And utopias are inherently political because Mm -hmm. they're asking you to imagine another world and they're saying another world is possible and they're saying if there was this other world, what would you want in it? And so for me, what's profound, one of the things that's profound about Singing in the Rain is that someone like Debbie Reynolds, who is an untrained dancer, could work her way up to being um, presentable alongside Gene Kelly. And I think that's a testament not just to her 
the work that she put into preparing this performance, but also to the way that the film integrates virtuosity and all great musicals do integrates virtuosity into the very fabric and logic of what they're doing so that even when Gene Kelly, who's the real virtuoso of the cast, even when he's done with his solo number, it's not like anyone's damn, you were dancing your ass off. You know, no one's acknowledging that because talent and musical genius is part of the very logic of the world that is the utopia that's being created. And what a lovely morning. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way, it's too late to say goodnight. So good morning, good morning, sunbeams will soon smile through. Good morning, good morning to you and you and you and you. Good morning, good morning, we've gabbed the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Nothing could be grander than to be in Louisiana in, in the, the morning. morning, in the morning. And that that utopia is beautiful as mm-hmm. it should be, and yes. that harmony is beautiful, and that uh, moving in unison is beautiful. And I and it's, I love that you bring up the Debbie Reynolds example because I think anyone who watches that uh, Good Morning dance number from that would be surprised to learn that she was just learning how to dance oh, yeah. because they are moving in such perfect sync that you wouldn't know the stories that she was up for. Yeah. You know two weeks straight with bloody feet trying to get that number right. Yeah. The final product is an, an image of effortlessness. Whereas, and as like I was saying about some recent films, you're supposed to watch and be amazed by the effort that it takes. Whereas I like, think, you, you, they, yeah. tried, they tried to erase that in the earlier films. Yeah. And I think you f- still find those sorts of depictions of effortlessness in other forms, not so much movie musicals of today, but you find it in pop music. I mean, I was thinking of Beyonce, you know, the way she has sort of trained herself to a T so that she is able to look completely free on a stage. Mm -hmm. That sort of harkens back to, or even someone like Michael Jackson, that's really taking the values of making it look effortless but also making it apparent enough that the work was put into the project to get you to that point where you're completely free vocally and physically. And tragically, Beyonce is a terrible actress. Tragic. Well, Cadillac Records. (laughs) Well, um... I do enjoy that movie. She's not Etta James. But I think there were glimmers. Ring the alarm. That's very generous. (laughs) I would just say that's a really, really great point, though, about Beyonce, because she's actually coming from, but she arose during a moment where effortfulness was actually the norm. That's mm-hmm. how you became a star in pop when yeah. she came around, and actually she fought against that to the point where it's actually, not, even though she's masterful and fantastic performer, singer, dancer, it's not about how amazing her voice is or how yeah. amazing a dancer she is. Yeah. Which I is woke interesting. Up like this. Which it, right, right. Which is also interesting to compare. I don't like the film Dream Girls as an example of a recent musical that I don't think is successful at all. Mm-hmm. But it's funny that Jennifer Hudson is the one who won for putting in a performance that is all about mm-hmm. um, this incredible effort. Mm-hmm. That it's all really. She won the Oscar for that one number, and that number is all about belting it out as loud and as forcefully as you possibly can. Beyonce, 
not a particularly good performance, but she kind of drifts into the background of that yeah. movie. Well, let's just stay on this for a minute because I was thinking about what you were talking about, how there used to be a path to Hollywood, which was being a singer and a dancer. Mm-hmm. And that is really not the pathway anymore. And so therefore we have a different set of casting and evaluation. The only time we have something like that is when very famous singers mm-hmm. make their way into Hollywood. And so therefore it's less about their effortfulness and more about how we expect we're going to see them be great. But it's only people who are already recording artists that and have that And that's been path. like that for a long time from Barbara Streisand to Bette Midler and beyond. But they're not often as charismatic performers as a Barbara Streisand or a Bette Midler right. these days especially. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think it's also important to note that, like, with the rise of pop music, the, like, Tin Pan Alley, Great American Songbook stuff really got pushed away, and people really didn't want that anymore. And that sort of helped to contribute to the decline just as much as just trying to make the sound of music over and over and over and over and over again. I once read a piece about that kind of Streisand, uh, Manilow, Midler generation as being really truly the last generation of that. And it's interesting that their Hollywood careers as being evidence of, of, of a last wave of that. So, uh, Michael, what's your classic film? Well, I only chose this one because I knew Andrew wasn't going to, because Andrew should be the one talking about this, <laughs> but because he wrote a really beautiful piece about it for Reverse Shot a few years ago. It's A Star is Born. It's George Cukor's staggering masterpiece a star is born with a staggering masterpiece of a performance by judy garland Mm -hmm. and another one by james mason in the male lead this film is an interesting one to talk about in the context of the great classic hollywood musicals because it's it's it both is one to a certain extent but it also just kind of breaks all the rules already in 1954 and in a most basic way there's like a realist aesthetic to it that other films other musicals did not have mm-hmm. and it was it was an early cinemascope film and it wasn't shot a technicolor it wasn't they, three strip because of that they had to reshoot a lot of the film because they wanted well they, they shot for they shot for two weeks yeah and then they scrapped all the footage to start over again to shoot in cinemascope yes which i'm sure kukor was mad about but i'm glad that now that they did that because it's a stunning looking yeah. movie and it's blocked the way that it's blocked is amazing i wanted to make the point first that it's an interesting point of comparison with singing in the rain because they're both movies about showbiz um, Sing in the Rain is more satirical and light. Star is Born is a heavy, tragic film, but they're both they're both pretty um, in their own way. They're kind of they're they're ironic and they're it's they're kind of caustic in a way about the industry. Mm-hmm. And they both start with a premiere. And in Star is Born, it's a little more pointedly terrifying. It has these amazing shots of the spotlights almost like zapping into your face. Yeah. It's almost like an assault. Um, so right off the bat, you know that the it's not a rosy picture of Hollywood. And uh, Judy Garland uh, had not been acting for about four years. She had had her problems in the 40s, and she had, had some breakdowns in the sets of The Pirate and Summerstock. And so this was a comeback film at age 32, <laughs> which is kind of hard to believe when, when you watch the film that she was only 32 there. I mean, not only has have are the years sort of on her face, but she's she has this like amazing maturity and seen it yeah, all her voice mm-hmm. too sounds like a 40 year old you know yeah. a little weathered yeah it's amazing what the difference yeah. between just those few years made yeah but it's a real showcase for her and it's a real it's fra- it was framed as a comeback and she, it's a it's a you know rise it, well it's right in the title it's a star is born story <laughs> a remake of a 1937 <laughs> william wellman film with frederick march and janet gaynor so in integrating the music into this film they found 
interesting ways of doing it. It's a little, it, again, it's a little more realist than other, other films, not just the aesthetic, but in the way that the music is put in there. They all, there's always a rationale. There's one song in the film where there, where there isn't like a showbiz or a screen within a screen rationale. And that's really when she's kind of playing for James Mason mm-hmm. in the living room. But even um, that is like an excuse where it's like, he's right. like, show me what you're going to do. Sweetheart. You're right. Even that, I mean, yeah. the orchestra comes out of nowhere, but yes, yeah, yeah. It, you're right. Basically it's a showbiz movie. So there's always a context for each song to be in there. And George Cukor had never made a musical. musical. Nope. Right. So um, that was probably a little more in his comfort zone. So after they wrapped shooting, the studio demanded that there be a bigger moment to close the first act before the intermission. And so the, um, Roger Edens, who was one of the Freed Unit, had helped. Though this wasn't an MGM film, this is a Warner Brothers film, but still, he helped create this really dynamic film within a film, like fifteen minute ish sequence, mm-hmm. ten to fifteen minutes. That is, you know, kind of like a microcosm story, charting the the vaudeville to film rise of this character that she plays in the film, mm-hmm. and it ends on this like ecstatic note. It's where she finishes the song Born in a Trunk. There's also a huge number. Swanee is in there. Mm-hmm. You know, the Al Jolson number that she kind of made her own there. And then she also performed again at her Carnegie Hall concert later. It's really kind of like one of those cases where the industry, everything was so set in place for that to work so well that it kind of the idea of like auteurism and whether what the director intended or didn't want or didn't want is kind of moot because yeah. it's such I, it's hard to for me to picture a star is born without the born in a trunk sequence of course the most amazing scene in the film is the man that got away which is maybe the best performed number in any musical ever made <laughs> does anybody have an objection there what it's all a crazy game No, no. Everyone's shaking their heads for those of you listening. I mean, Neil Diamond's America, but I mean. (laughs) And we'll have some other ones to talk about later that I agree with you. My second favorite is actually Judy Garland's daughter, Liz Minnelli, doing the title number from Cabaret at the end. Those are the two numbers that leave me a puddle. uh, What about New York, New York? Liza doing New York, New York. Oh, my God. Okay, basically, you you have to be be Judy Garland or Liza Minnelli. (laughs) Otherwise, it's unfair. Fair. It's the, unfair. The numbers don't matter. Right. So, I don't know. It, it, the reason that I think A Star is Born is an extraordinary film. As I said before, it, it, it it's kind of setting the ground rules at the same time as breaking all of them. Mm-hmm. And it is the most pure, perfect, emotionally wrenching showcase for this one very extraordinary talent, the likes of which we will never see again in film or on stage. And every time I watch it, I um, knowing that Judy Garland's you know real life story and knowing how it's kind of filtered into the narrative a bit, it's a it becomes almost difficult. It becomes an almost unbearably emotional experience. There's a scene in the film, and this just expresses everything 
about show business and and the musical itself, which is after she does the song, Lose That Long Face. (laughs) As we said before, like, you know, musicals are utopias. You sing to kind of like enter this almost fugue state where there are no problems and you can, and and a lot of recent musicals of like Dancer in the Dark, you know, they exploit that and they kind of put it to their logical extremes. Um, In a more subtle way, she sings this uh, number and she's in a, she's in this freckles and this straw hat and this ridiculous hick hairdo wig. And it's, the scene comes directly after the most upsetting scene in the film, which is when uh, her character, Esther Blodgett, a.k.a. Vicky Lester, um, has won her Academy Award, the award that was not given to Judy Garland when this movie came out, by the way. And um, James Mason, who is her alcoholic husband, because, you know, the film is about his decline and her ascendance, shows up drunk at the ceremony. I mean, imagine if this were to actually ever happen at the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Comes onto stage, waves his arms around, and, and in trying to trying to love her the best he can actually hits her in the face yes it's horrible and also says i'm looking talk for work <laughs> i can't <laughs> i can't talk unbearable. about it yeah so directly after that scene is lose that long face mm-hmm. and then oh and then and then, then the- after she performs it she goes backstage and has her most emotional breakdown of the film while she's still in costume yes she has freckles she has a straw hat and she says she talks about how she hates her husband because he can't change but she loves him so much that she can't leave him yeah it's rough well and even just like the fact that they're like they're literally dancing in the street like you know tap dancing in puddles and like the kids are coming around and then it's like perfect and then they're like okay we need to do it from another angle get ready and she's just like (sighs) it's like i mean that alone is heartbreaking it's a sort of a more subtle way of showing the other face of what the musical is exactly it's it's a completely self-referential moment and yeah. and we'll talk about you know more postmodern musicals and musicals mm-hmm. that seem to deconstruct the very idea of the musical but yeah. stars born was doing it in 1954 right and then also another heartbreaking sequence is when she goes in for like the makeup she basically throws her career up until that point in the toilet because he promised her to get a screen test at like 3 a.m one night after he <laughs> after drinking and seeing her in an after hours club and so he gets her a screen test and there are three men they're dressed like dentists like they're going to perform dental surgery on her and they have these giant magnifying um, glasses magnifying glasses and they're like what's the problem with her face what's the problem oh her nose and judy garland up until Meet Me in St. Louis, had to wear nasal discs because Louis B. Mayer did not like her nose. Even just the fact that she has to play somebody who is on the other side of addiction is heartbreaking. So, uh, and clearly referential in some respect. Most definitely. Um, I can only conclude on A Star is Born by saying that everyone who hasn't seen it, who's listening to this, has to go out and find it. It's probably not quite what you expect it to be. It always surprises me every time I watch it. And I've been watching it since I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. And I'm always really, really shocked at its sophistication and its um, emotional integrity. Mm -hmm. Does it make it impossible that there's been a remake, there's going to be another remake? Is there something that's just sort of futile about that at all? Or is there something that's actually kind of rich enough to yield worthwhile adaptations? I Well, I've only seen the, the Janet Gaynor and the Judy Garland. I've actually never seen the Barbara Streisand one. I know it's not, it's kind of liked in a camp way. And I know that they're working on one now with Lady Gaga. And Bradley Cooper and Bradley directing. Bradley Cooper, strangely. I mean, we'll, we'll, I'll, when it happens, I believe it. They are, they're always saying that they're going to make yeah. one. I mean, it's obviously just such a archetypal story i know why they keep going back to it but um yes yes it's futile (laughs) the answer is yes no i guess that's what i'm saying again in some ways it seems like it's futile you're always going to fail and yet also at the same time sometimes that can be the case that yet there's something so archetypal and and rich about it that 
I mean, I guess like the front page is actually a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Where actually worthwhile adaptations have made, even though there's one masterpiece, His Girl Friday, right. within that. Right. Well, yeah. we'll see. We'll see if Lady Gaga can measure up even now. Not even way. the way you say her name. Is so well, I have. I've, I've, I saw parts of that American Horror Story. I've yeah. seen her act. It's rough. Air quotes. <laughs> it's rough. Well, Eric. I had the benefit of seeing what these two brilliant gentlemen had already picked, so I was going to not pick another pillar of great music, Hollywood musicals. <laughs> not that I don't love this film, but I just felt like it would be more interesting to talk about something a little more contemporary. And I love the one you picked, too. Okay. I think I've seen that movie more than any film we're talking about well, today. And that, which which brings ahead. me how I'll, I'll start, which is Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. And it's, it's, I think it's, I think, and not that I want to get bogged down in biography because it's not the most interesting thing to say, but I do think it's the first musical that I saw in the, in the cinema. Mm-hmm. And it is the first musical that I had a real relationship to as it was coming out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was exposed to musicals earlier than that. I guess I was around 12 when this came out. And so uh, I was exposed to other musicals previous to that. And I'd, I grew up on The Sound of Music. I grew up in The Wizard of Oz. And yet this one, it hit me in a moment where I was interested enough in musical theater that uh, it became something I was obsessed with for a long time. And that cassette of Little Shop of Power is a thing that I would just listen to as often as I listen to any other pop music of the moment. I actually don't think there was another musical like that that I listened to it quite in that way. So it, it seemed worth going back to. I mean, it's a strange artifact in the sense that it's a musical that's based on an off-Broadway musical, which is based on a 1960B movie produced by Roger Corman, which is itself a kind of spoof on monster movies. Mm -hmm. Usually that kind of trajectory doesn't yield interesting art. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess Hairspray is actually is identical in yeah. a sense. Hairspray is what's different about Hairspray is it was there's quite a, a distance between um, one movie, uh, the, the movie and then the musical adaptation and the film of that adaptation. Whereas this is the case where uh, this was an off-Broadway production in the early '80s and made it to the West End and then within a couple of years made its way to Hollywood. So it was actually quite fresh material. And it's the it's the first collaboration I believe between uh, Mencken and. Howard Ashman, who who um, then went on to do uh, Little Mermaid and, and various other uh, Disney productions after that. It's a pretty basic story, um, <laughs> which, you know, kind of uh, approaches 1950s urban America. And there's sort of musically, there's Motown elements, there's soul, there's um, doo-wop. Um, and it's the story of uh, a man named Seymour who happens upon a freak plant that becomes a sensation. And in order for it to grow, it needs to basically be a vampire and devour blood or human flesh. Um, but it's also a, a romance. So with that plot then yields this adaptation. And so you've got basically a monster movie that's also a romance, that's also a spoof in a sense. And so therefore the fact that it is kind of has that strange lineage. What works about it, I think, is that it takes quite seriously the musical. Though it's a spoof in a sense, though it's taking light of a lot of what's going on, it actually takes quite seriously songcraft, and the book is actually kind of fantastic. Um, And the thing about the the, the film adaptation about it that I really love is how smart and affectionate it is towards studio sets. It's entirely on a studio set in 1986 at a time when musicals are all already obviously passe and old fashioned. And if you're going to do a musical, you have to find a way of getting it out of the box of the theater. And this actually goes in the opposite direction. 
And the fact that Frank Oz is the director, I think, is actually a huge part of it. Frank Oz is obviously spending 20 years uh, working with Jim Henson and making uh, work that is of obviously very much studio-based, not entirely, but often is studio-based. And so he actually really knows how to work a camera, how to work lighting, how to work blocking, how to deal with sets that are not pretending to be realistic and, and making worlds out of them. And I think there's something really wonderful about uh, how he does that. Um, and you've got a cinematographer who's comes from British TV background and uh, also directed Michael Jackson's Thriller. So it's also in that moment where like, another John Landis is another filmmaker of that moment who actually appreciated studio sets, which uh, was sort of a tangent. It's actually the 80s as being a, often as talking as a wasteland of cinema unfairly, but maybe somewhat fairly. Uh, there's actually kind of an amazing group of films that are studio set films like one from the heart um warren Beatty's dick tracy it's an amazing studio set film and i i, I apologize for not having a list of, of of 12 or 15 or anything like that but i think that there actually is there's something to that um, three is enough three is enough um you sold me well i mean you can look at also the muppet films as well although muppet films were part of what was so interesting what they're doing is they did bring the muppets into the real world mm-hmm. but uh, greg muppet caper in particular i think is, a, is very much a studio set film yeah, Little Shop of Horror has the feel of kind of like a, a run-down Sesame Street. It really does, yeah. And it's funny, like, as far as what Little Shop of Horrors is about, like, a lot of the great songs of the of, are about getting away, like, Skid Row is, is, is where it's set, uh, like a sort of New York Skid Row, and everybody's trying to get away from Skid Row, and they're complaining about Skid So there's a, there's a narrative here of getting out of the city to some bucolic American countryside, which I actually abhor, um, <laughs> but I find quite compelling. Uh, within the narrative of the characters. And, you know, I, I should say that, like, it's an interesting moment in terms of a crossover between taking seriously the musical, but also this being Hollywood and having to adapt it to a new audience, which is that you've paired Ellen Green, who originated the role off-Broadway and then also performed in the West End, who's f- absolutely phenomenal. Like, it's an unbelievable performance because she both takes on an accent like Jean Hagen's performance where she's, uh, it's a cartoonish accent of a kind of a dumb a dumb chick and yet not only is the character more interesting than that as you discover but her voice like she sings through that character's voice i feel when she comes into her own as a singer and you you get the full the full impact of what that voice can do it's almost like that moment in mulholland drive oh wow where naomi watts yeah yeah. you realize that she's a great actress yeah there's like this other level but she never gives up the accent she never gives up that character it's really wonderful But she's paired with Rick Moranis, who I think was actually well cast 
body type, well cast. He's actually his vocal is his accent is also quite fantastic. He's just not nearly the singer. That part doesn't necessarily demand a great singer, but I've seen other singers play that part, and there is something lost there. It would have been great to have had somebody who is not a name ish the way Rick Moranis was in 1986, be cast. But I think that is where your Hollywood concession to this current moment is there was not a male actor who necessarily could be paired. Like, if Ellen Green is going to be in that film, which is amazing that she was, because even in the 60s, Ellen Green would not be cast in that film, you, you almost have to pair her with somebody. The fact that Rick Moranis was actually enough of a star mm-hmm. in 1986 to, to be that is... The other solution it had for that is to populate the film with cameos. And I think that actually most of them work, too. Steve Martin as a dentist. Steve Martin as a dentist is kind of great. It's a yeah. great comedic performance. Bill Murray is then filmed for like a minute or two minutes. Oh, He's oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's really amazing. And that's the thing. I mean, Bill Murray is one of the great cameo actors, which at this point we have, we have enough to talk about with Bill Murray. But he was, and especially during the 80s, like his cameo appearances were home runs every single one. And, you know, Christopher Guest shows up and Jim Belushi shows up and that kind of helped, I think, sell the film. And it was actually enough of a hit. I mean, it wasn't a huge smash, but it actually did well enough. I don't know what that meant in terms of then Hollywood musicals beyond that, although it certainly meant that Ashman and Mencken had a career going forth and were trusted with numerous Disney musicals. It's also worth saying that, like, the weird unsung star of the film is Levi Stubbs of The Four Tops. Absolutely. The Four Tops, correct. Who is the voice in a very weird bit of racial coding? Is the voice of the Jim Henson design plant? Yes, very, very coded as black. Oh yeah, and that becomes one of the jokes of the film. Mm-hmm. It's there from the, it was there in the stage play too. That's how it's written. Mm-hmm. I've never quite known how to square that or what to do with that. Right. I know that I find it very amusing, <laughs> but I wonder if there has if there's been any kind of pushback on that in recent years that's a good question but one of the things that's interesting about it in terms of the narrative then is that the stage production and the intended ending of the film is that the plant sort of prevails and so you have this coated black uh, motown plant devouring all the white people that feed it and there's no <laughs> that that's the that's the in a sense triumphant ending except except that that the film is also all about the fear of the city so right. in a sense, it's kind of validating the fear in of a sense, the fear of the city. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, what's coded black in the film is you have three like co- there's a chorus of three African American sing- uh, singers, like including Tisha Campbell, including Tisha Campbell, mm-hmm. and then there's Audrey too, the plant. So yeah, it's a, I, I I would love a reading of of, of that on, on racial grounds. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly what to make of it. I was obsessed with those three women when I was Amazing. a kid. <laughs> I think I I didn't know. I, my parents took me to see it when it came out, so I was seven and um, I was genuinely obsessed with it I, I made them yeah. take me again um, but I didn't know what I was going to see I did I heard the title sounded very strange and scary to me but they took me and it starts it, it's a musical from the very beginning that title number comes right on at the beginning and those three women are in their amazing polka dot dresses and they're mm-hmm. doo-wopping down the street I was so entranced I, it, it, it became I, I bought the comic book I got the record I got the tape I got the VHS and it became this thing that I had to watch all the time. Mm. And I do think part of that is because it, it is that weird thing where it's like kind of camp, but it actually it takes itself, like you're saying, it, it takes it pretty seriously as a musical. It's a very successful, beautifully done musical. And it and um, I don't know, for that seven-year-old in the fourth row, it was really kind of amazing. I mean, it's, I mean things like Suddenly Seymour, which is a gorgeous song and a successful song in actually getting you care about characters who are potentially, you know... Um, uh, sketched broadly 
and or maybe performed broadly at moments, and then that song actually makes you care for them despite whatever's going to happen around it. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I never laughed at that song. I thought it was very serious. No, it's 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 beautiful. And then like the dentist performance, uh, the, the dentist uh, role and performance. I mean, I actually think that I responded so much to that song because it reminded me of Weird Al Yankovic, who's huge <laughs> at that time, and that and his whole vocal performance is actually quite similar to what Will Yan- Weird, Al Yan- Weird Al sings when he's taking when he's actually trying to sing. Yeah. he sounds a lot like when, when Steve Martin's trying to sing. But anyway, that's 1986 for you. But it's also going back to what you were saying. It's actually a very Jewish musical too and and there's even evocations of i forget what's it what's the name of the shopkeeper played by mr. 80s heartthrob vincent gardenia <laughs> mr mushnick mr mushnick which reminds me of manichek from little shop around the corner the sort of jewish shopkeeper in that which i th- and i think there's something about the shopkeeper I, I think there's something to that too um and you've got two jewish uh you know uh composer and lyricist right and and that they would go on to write the songs for what were the truly the musicals of the 90s right the animated disney mm-hmm. films were the musicals of the 90s indeed well i'm going to talk about bollywood and this is not just like oh yeah this crazy little thing called bollywood no this is like the second largest film production center in the world and before i give a little bit more context there's this misconception that it's like oh people in india the diaspora that's sort of it for people who watch bollywood and then maybe like funky white people but really during the cold war these movies would travel in places where because they were not part of that binary they would travel to china they would travel to russia in northern nigeria which is predominantly muslim a lot of northern nigerian you know nollywood movies are based off of those and you know it sort of provided the template for smaller regional cinemas and also Sri Lankan cinema so it's my mom actually is very well versed in Bollywood films and it's funny because at the time Malaysia when she was growing up there that was the cinema exactly. besides Hollywood and so she can even sing some Bollywood songs she doesn't yeah. understand what's going on in them but mm-hmm. yeah she she feels very attached to that. Yeah, yeah. And I know uh, somebody who grew up in Beijing whose dad can do the same thing. Yeah. Doesn't know a word of Hindi, but can uh, sing all these songs. And it's sort of said that Bollywood helped teach Indians Hindi because 1947, there's the partition of India. Basically, the British were like, okay, everybody switch houses. <laughs> um, you know, Muslims go to Pakistan, and it was the largest mass migration in history. And, you know, India, it's huge. And so there are a lot of different languages and coming together and creating this national character. That was a huge, Bollywood is completely integral to that. But obviously, like the way society works in Bollywood films and even the industry itself, where you can have Muslim Sikhs, Hindus working together, starring in films together, that's not necessarily representative of what the country is. It's sort of like this aspirational thing. It's also worth mentioning that even before Bollywood, India was the third largest producer of film in the entire world. So from the advent of the Lumieres to 1947, it was a huge exporter. But the film that I'm going to talk about is Mother India by Mahbub Khan. The title, Mother India, refers to this book written by Catherine Mayo in 1927 that was basically like very paternalistic. Catherine Mayo. What a perfect name. Um, and she was like, oh, these silly brown people, you know, the women, there's the caste system, the women are treated terribly, they're made prostitutes by their men who are also like effeminate. 
her, her argument's very bad. It's, it's, it's awful. It's just flat out racist. And you know, we need to save these people. And so this guy was like, you know, I'm going to refute this idea that Indian women are weak. And in 1940, he made a, sort of a precursor of this film called Arat. And it had the same basic plot where it's this woman who gets married and her in-laws pay for the wedding with this money lender. And then they end up owing him and owing him and the debt gets worse and worse. And then there are two sons, one good, one bad. And then she sort of survives on her own. So this was a Mother India made in 1957. And it stars Nargis, who is Muslim, and she plays sort of the archetypal Hindu woman. It's, it starts when she's an old woman. And these people who are, you know, of the village are like, oh, come on, come on, help us and, you know, help us christen this dam. But it's not christened because they're Hindu. Anyway, so she goes and she's just like, oh, my God, really? No, I don't want to do this. And so they take her over and she flashes back to her wedding day and how happy she was. And then in comes the problem with the money lender. And then the land that they are given to work is like really rocky and her husband loses both his arms, that gets crushed by a boulder. Like, it's like incredibly tragic. And he basically decides to kill himself. He walks away from the village and to nothingness. And so she's left with four children. Two of them die. It's, it's very tragic, but she perseveres and she perseveres. And at the end of the film, she, you see her, you know, you see her lift and the water flows through the dam and the water is rusty and blood red. And it's like, it's just such an indelible, it's like an amazing like gut punch image. And I should also note that Maboob Productions, the logo is an M with a hammer and sickle. So in case you were wondering what the politics were, that's what it is. Um, and of course this includes the music is sung by, you know, other singers and then the actors sort of mouth along. Lata Mungashar and Muhammad Rafi, they're some of the most iconic singers of Bollywood and they, they sang some of the songs. circulation basically constantly up until the moment that there was satellite TV. And uh, I love it. It's like most Bollywood movies. It has every possible genre in it. There's romance, there's action, there's drama. It's like everything. Everything is in this movie. And it's almost three hours long and it's really good. Now we can switch to musicals that really move the form forward. So Andrew, why don't you kick off well so when i received your email saying that we should pick one that defies the form i don't love a lot of those films i think maybe because i'm so attached to the traditional format of the arthur freed musical but so i thought i would take a different approach not choose a film that moves um the genre forward formally or aesthetically but one that sort of moves it forward a little bit racially and um, for me that's Sister Act 2 I saw it when it came out I was very young I saw it with my mom Sister Act 2 Back in the Habit that's the I was waiting title. for the full title yes. come on um, and for 
a lot of people in my generation, this is a touchstone musical, even though it's not seen as a musical. And I think everyone who has ever loved musicals, who's a person of color, at some moment has their musical So White revelation. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I was growing up, the only film that I had as an Asian American was Flower Drum Song, which I continue to love, and I haven't revisited it, so I, I don't know what problematic stuff is in there, but <laughs> I, I remember thinking, wow, we can sing too. And But there was always that sort of thing about when you saw people of color on screen in a musical where it almost felt anthropological or, oh, these people can perform too. It was know? part Even, of the around the world medley, which is exactly, always going to be fucking racist. Yes. Always. <laughs> so um, I remember seeing this and I'm a kid who grew up with R&B and hip hop. Like that was my go to music up until high school when I started branching out and listening to different genres. But I always sort of wondered why is this music that I love so much not reflected in musicals, not reflected in movies, period. And when it comes to the classic musicals, you can sort of say, well, their whiteness is sort of part and parcel of the like larger whiteness of classic Hollywood. That's just how it is. But there's something very strange about the fact that 20th century pop music, you know, black music was the bedrock of that, and both artistically and commercially. And you didn't really have um, it reflected in the movie musical form. And so for me... Um, seeing this film, Sister Act 2, which is basically a celebration of black gospel music. Um, Whoopi Goldberg plays this Las Vegas showgirl who is enlisted to basically make this Catholic high school safe for black music. And black music is, black gospel in particular, is sort of seen as this antidote to the drudgery of the white world. <laughs> and... Um, it was very invigorating to watch and to see this music that I loved um, reflected in this film. And another reason that I chose it is because I sort of feel um, my favorite scene in the film uh, sort of ties back to A Star is Born. There's this moment where Lauren Hill is singing His Eyes on the Sparrow and you realize that this is a very private moment um, and you're not really supposed to be watching it and there's this white nun who enters the room and catches her and realizes um, what an amazing voice she has and she's sort of throughout the film she's been antisocial, sort of acting up, not really engaging in class. She hasn't sung in public as far as I know in the film up until this point and the way she sings this song, you can tell that she's almost ashamed of being so talented, almost ashamed of her need to sing. And that is something that reminded me a bit of the Man That Got Away sequence in A Star Is Born, where you have this bloodletting, this outpouring of soul from this vocalist. And some and your eavesdropping on it and you can tell that this singer if this person doesn't sing they're gonna die you know that feeling of urgency just try it I sing because I'm happy 
and I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I feel like you don't find that in traditional musicals, you know because of how integrated the virtuosity was into the texture of the film, because of how taken for granted talent is in a lot of those um, classic musicals. Um, but in this particular scene, I would say that the film is actually not that good, but um, this particular scene makes it worth it because you are asked to, I feel like in classic Hollywood musicals, you're never asked to question why someone would sing. It's almost more like, why not? Because everyone's talented. But in this scene, you realize it's because this person needs this expression. And um, the fact that she's hiding this talent um, means that she gets applauded by this nun, which also never happens in classic Hollywood. Mm. So. For me, it's sort of, uh, while I would not credit Sister Act Two with a movement toward this, I, I do think it's a manifestation of this movement away from sort of the outwardly oriented vaudevillian um, kind of musical and a more introspective view of what music is in our lives. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about Sister Act, well, the first Sister Act and then this one, especially when she's first auditioning the kids, it's like, they take Mary Had a Little Lamb and they wrap it mm -hmm. and then they sing it with like a gospel style. And like Whitney Houston, part of the reason why, aside from being an amazing singer, what made Whitney Houston so revolutionary in pop music is that she brought all of these things like melisma, mm -hmm. which is the the thing that, the annoying thing that Christina Aguilera does, the ah, The modulation like, between notes yes, on one syllable. Uh, yeah, uh, and just dragging it out. Yeah. She brought that to pop music and this is, bringing those traits to the musical and sort of, and again being like it's okay mm -hmm. it's okay and i would say on the on the musical front like just the the pure like evaluating the music in the film i do think it was trend setting mm -hmm. because um gospel had not yet had um its crossover kirk franklin wasn't until 1995 or 1996 mm -hmm. and here you have this hybridization of hip-hop r&b and gospel mm -hmm. in this way um the film could easily have exoticized that or made it um uh seem other right. but it doesn't there's not that sort of anthropological aspect to it. And it's because the film invites you in and it assumes that you know this music, yeah. even if you've never heard of His Eyes on the Sparrow. Even if it's in a Catholic high school and Catholicism being like mm -hmm. completely removed yeah. from the gospel tradition yeah. and like the service is almost antithetical to what like evangelicalism gospel yeah. expression is. But And another thing that I would say about Lauren Hill, and this was before she became famous, this was before the Fugees had their first album. Mm -hmm. I mean, she could have been a movie star. She... Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect performance, but she exudes charisma. She yeah. exudes soul. And one thing that, again, reminds me of Judy Garland in A Star is Born is this idea of we carry our lives on our voice. Mm. Um, or for a dancer, you carry your, your life on your body. And when she opens her mouth, you know, she's playing this 15-year-old, 16-year-old, but she has the voice of someone who's lived. And 
that also happens in A Star is Born, this inseparability of the artist, the vocalist's life from the sound that they produce is not something that you really find in the classic Hollywood musicals. Um, now, it's interesting that you talk about this um, private moment that you had, because in thinking about the film that I would choose for my uh, my next selection, you know, a film that would push the genre forward in some way, um, I went through a lot of different possibilities and I definitely wanted to do Distant Voices to Lives mm. um, because it really is a, um, a revolutionary musical in a way. But I wanted to do something a little more recent and I happened upon, um, or I thought of uh, one of my favorite films of this century, which is um, a Japanese film called All About Lily Shushu. And I, th- it's not really a musical per mm. se, but I think what it's doing is pretty indicative of a movement within the musical genre that I think we've been seeing for a really long time, which is a movement towards complete interiority. Mm. Um, I think it's ra- something like La La Land, for instance, is actually rare. The traditional aspects of it, the way that, the way it's performed to camera, the way there's like spontaneous explosions of music, the way there's no shame in that, and it just kind of emerges from the characters. It's actually, uh, doesn't you don't see that much anymore. Like Even in something like Chicago, the best the, the movie adaptation that won Best Picture, shockingly, um, <laughs> they had to create these... Um, the music's great. It's Candor and Ebb, but they had to create these weird, completely subjective spaces for the music to take place. So all of the all the songs had to take place within the minds of the characters as the way of contextualizing it, I guess, because contemporary audiences wouldn't accept it any other way. But I think we were actually seeing forms of that for a long time. I think Pennies from Heaven, yes. the great Pennies from Heaven, is, is this, you know, it's all about interiority and of the music of the mind. And um, One from the Heart is like that, that, you know, finding ways of using the music in other ways. Um, so it's actually coming from some sort of inner space um even streisand's yentl for maybe for other reasons reasons of ego potentially but like all the songs are by barbara streisand and they're all in her head um and i think that so all about lily shushu which is a 2001 um japanese film by shinji ey pushes it to its like most extreme moment like uh, you could actually say it's maybe the first and last like silent rave musical in a way right <laughs> the recurring image uh, it's, it, uh, is of these teenagers standing in these fields of tall grass these like super saturated ultra green verdant fields as they listen on their headphones to the music of this one pop singer and um, lily shushu um, and she's like she's this bjork like figure they always talk about how she comes from the ether mm-hmm. um, what's really fascinating about the film is that you don't hear her music for a very long time the music is almost all debussy Mm-hmm. So there are uh, musical sequences, in a sense, things set to music, but it's always set to something that has maybe inspired Lily Shushu's music or reminds them of Lily Shushu's music. amazing thing which I think is really radical narratively is that the kids don't even really talk about Lily Shushu it's this thing that just floats around them as they deal with all of these extremely scary adolescent angst problems yeah it's a great I think it's a great probably the first great movie 
about the internet. The things that are actually, when they do discuss her, it's entirely through this like message board and everyone right. has an alias and the text just flashes on screen. And it's like very, it's like intimate. It's like so intimate, but then also very esoteric. So you don't know who's who. So from the very mm-hmm. beginning, the uh, the screen keeps getting interrupted with, um, with these chats. They show up on the screen. You hear the mm-hmm. typing, they show up on the screen. But in addition to that, it also keeps cutting out to black. Yeah. And it's sort of a very interesting, at first it feels very avant-garde. It happens for the first 10 minutes and you think, is this even going to be a narrative film? And then at the end of every message where they're talking about the music of Lee Shushu, how much it means to them, you see the names, just the usernames that they have, these aliases. And you don't realize who's who until the end of the film. Uh, it could might not even be these kids. Right. It's just these people talking about this character. And also I think those disruptions where the, the film keeps cutting to black is almost, it, it's like what a musical does right like constantly disrupting the narrative flow for some other space so i mean they're really this is definitely a film about utopia this is definitely a film about trying to get to this more ecstatic place and doing it through music so even though it's not a musical per se have rarely in this new millennium (laughs) felt um so moved by music and film and it really it's at the one minute and sorry it's the one hour and 55 minute point of this two hour and 40 two hour and 20 minute movie that you actually first really hear a song by Lily Shushu there's a little bit but then there's at an extremely dramatic moment in the film you finally hear a song and then um and then another one completely completely in the closing credits the way that she's used is almost like this deity they they, they she's she's this figure hanging over their lives she's she's this god-like presence mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a, like a literal person you know the way that we idolize pop singers like you know elevated to like religious levels mm-hmm. it's also an early digital video film so you can tell when you look at it now i love the way it looks but it doesn't have the feel of yeah it's, there's nothing slick about it yeah and um i'm just always thinking about it in a way and it's funny that you bring up um you know it's like an early internet film it was around it was kind of the same year as pulse the kiyoshi kurosawa yes. film which is also a really fascinating early internet film um, where there was a lot of you know a lot of ambivalence maybe about our relationship to that and I think people should seek it out well it's it's an early internet film but it's also so on the rise it's an early internet film on the other side of 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 the slope which is another reason to revisit it is it I mean I was rewatching it again this morning I mean it's filled with record stores and CDs yes. and, and Walkmen oh my god it's so sad it's incredibly moving it's so actually, sad to me there's um, a lot of shoplifting yes and there's a lot of shoplifting but it's, but it's something also, that, we, that we've lost I don't know if it was the first <laughs> but I think it's 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 certainly a, a lead or, or it's if not the first one of the first like headphone films mm-hmm. and I think like th- things like Morvan Keller and uh, All These Sleepless Nights that sort of, I think it's it's of a it, it's a certain genre of films where you're talking about that intimacy, the intimacy of like almost like you're watching the film with headphones, and maybe your identification with characters is that they are also sort of having that close experience with music. Well, and your identification with these characters is almost solely through, through their love of music because what's right. more leveling? You know, I mean, we all yeah. we all have that same relationship to pop music, and um, the kids are all very different. Some, I mean, the, some of them are really horrible bullies. Right. The movie is very sympathetic to all of them. You see the reasons why that happened. But because they all have this secret love that they will not share with each other about the singer, 
you're let into their world mm. and they never the movie never expresses that it's it's really a special film well i'll continue and I, I we don't have to talk but we were, we're all saying such wonderful things and you're all so eloquent about these films that i mean i, I really want to see sister act two again all of a sudden <laughs> Well, anyway, so the film that I picked was Inside Lewin Davis, which is a recent film that I think we've probably all seen. And so I don't have to give, I don't think, too much context for what it is. Um, but I, I, I picked it because of, I guess, both of, of how the film functions, but then also how it existed in the culture and how it is this, this situation. It is a situation where, in some ways, I think the soundtrack was more popular than the film itself. It doesn't harken back to a Hollywood musical, but it harkens back to a certain moment in in time and histor- in history in terms of music and a, a fulcrum point, a, a turning point in terms of one music overtaking another and and having characters having characters be made flesh and become whole through that moment in a sense it's like singing in the rain moment too where you've got kind of folk music being eclipsed by rock and roll and a very interesting moment too because folk music was incredibly popular for that sliver of time mm-hmm. and incredibly popular in this in the sliver of the earth which is like the village in new york so it's, I think it's it's rich in terms of history it's rich but also rich in terms of how it uses music because though it's not uh, a lot of the most i think if not all almost all the music is existed prior to the to the film so it's not an original musical in that sense but the way that i mean it's fearful at all it's not apologizing for being a musical it's not which i think is really important for this moment and in terms of what you're talking about in terms of how musicals function and how they have to justify themselves this is a film that's not justifying its use of music at all in fact one of the things i love about it which makes me think about nashville a lot is how it plays songs in their full which i i I, completely adore because you're a you're valuing the music you're saying these songs need to be here but it's also not entirely asking those songs to do all the work in fact there is i think i think there's an arc to the narrative that happens side by side with the music and then each song is allowed to have their own its own arc its own import without asking that song to push the plot forward in a major way which i think is actually quite like nashville a lot of those songs do push things forward you're getting to know character through those songs, but also you're hearing people sing beautiful songs and then they're assholes as soon as the song ends. <laughs> yeah. In this respect, what I find incredibly moving about it, I mean, it's, I, I find it a staggering film on, on, for many reasons, but one of the things I love the way that it uses music is that you hear a song in full and it has an emotional impact and then it doesn't necessarily change anybody's life after that song is over. You have these like, you know, this is Oscar Isaac's star-making performance. Obviously, he's in, he's phenomenal. He's a fantastic singer. Is a fantastic interpreter of these Dave Van Ronk songs, uh, which is mostly what he's singing. And yet, he is a complicated character. He's a he's a bit of an asshole. He doesn't get anywhere in the course of the film, and yet it doesn't diminish the impact of the songs. Like, like there's which makes me think of another thing, which is I think is often indicative of of, of recent musicals. Is which I know also has a, a long lineage. The sense of when a music sequence happens, we're transported from the real world, and it's somehow imaginary existence. And I think "Dance from the Dark" is probably the biggest sinner for me mm-hmm. in, in this. Where when music happens, oh, she thinks though, which she's an imaginary world where everything's a musical and everything's wonderful, as if musicals are this strict terrain where everything's wonderful and rosy, which is never actually the case. But the fact that it kind of like makes music this in a sense like the utopian but like in in a, in a way that's very shallow like she's have this she's in a dreamland when in a sense kind of condemns her as a character for 
on one hand, you're supposed to think of her as being freeing herself through music, but she's also condemned to not being able to exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas something like Inside Lewin Davis, you have these incredible, beautiful performances. And yes, he's often, because this is a Coen Brothers film, punished soon after those like there's the there's the the F Mary Abraham scene where he is it Chicago that he, dri- that yeah, he yeah, fo- yeah. drives where he says this incredible show stopping performance and then F Mary Abraham says you know I don't I don't see any money in it right but that line doesn't negate the performance that line negates him as a business entity it negates his career but does not negate how beautiful that performance is yeah. and I love that those things get to exist side by side and that the narrative doesn't punish people for actually investing in music and caring about their music you get people whose integrity as musicians is not lost even if they are lost as people or if their careers are ruined the way that his yeah. is yeah it's not a financial thing it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be King Henry, will you do one thing for me? Will you open my right side and find my baby and find my baby? Yeah, a thing can be beautiful without assigning a value to it. And that ties into Sister Act, too, because of her being this hidden talent. And, yeah, I think the traditional musical is all about sort of the externalization of all this, all these gifts. And, you know, talent is proliferating everywhere. It's very much on the surface, ready to be enjoyed. And the thing I like about Sister Act, too, and also enjoy about Inside Lewin Davis is this sense that, wow, we've missed out on, we're constantly missing out on all these <laughs> gifts that are not being shared right. because they can't be monetized. My film is, that sort of breaks the boundaries, is The Hole, aka Dong, by Sai Ming Liang, made in 1998. I love Sai a lot. And this film, it's set in this perpetually rainy, rundown apartment block in Taiwan where Almost everyone has vacated the building. Most of the other places that they travel are through tunnels because there's this Taiwan fever going around. <laughs> you actually see some of the sufferers of this this mysterious millennium malady walking around the film, and it's it's uh, it's funny, but it's also terrifying. Uh, but and it's transmitted through water, so everyone in the film is boiling water and making like shitty ramen noodles, and sort of what kicks off the film is that Li Kangsheng, he has a plumber come over and the plumber just makes a giant hole in his floor and is like, yeah, sorry, I can't fix that. It leads to Yang Kuimei's apartment and she is sort of hoarding all of this stuff to prepare because it's sort of the end of the world. It's basically the end of the world and she's biding her time and they sort of keep running into each other. You know, he puts his arm down the hole, explores, he makes the hole bigger in this utterly shitty apartment they keep running into each other and there are these very flashy but also like showing the seams of every little aspect of them musical numbers using these classic mandarin songs that one of them is called o calypso and and i feel like all of them sort of incorporate uh some sort of latin american musical form
Shen Hsiang's Exit is a, another film that sort of deals with the importance of like tango for women of a certain generation. But anyway, I love these musical sequences. There are these flashing lights. They'll take a fire extinguisher and sort of cradle it and dance with it. And all this is just lip syncing. They're not actually singing these songs. And in one of the musical numbers is I Want Your Love. She stops lip syncing and she just sort of dances with him. And it's just... Well, I mean, what's so surprising about that movie is that it has this well-honed aesthetic, but that Simon and Yang have been practicing for a long time. Yeah. And then these really disruptive musical numbers, when you first see them, they really come out of nowhere. It's, it's, exactly. It really pushes his whole idea of cinema forward and the musical itself. It's, it's a beautiful and hilarious and scary movie. Yeah. They just meet each other and then it's like, oh, this passionate, sexy dance sequence. Nothing about their interaction would leave. It's not integrated into the narrative. And then eventually it is. One of my favorites, I don't care who you are. You know, they're both dressed in these beautiful clothes that you never see them wear any other time in the movie. And they put a white cloth on the floor, like almost like somebody threw down a handkerchief for them to slow dance on because the actual floor is too dirty for them to dance on. So fortunately we have to close. But before we do... Uh, it would be great if we each went around and said a film that we saw recently that we liked. A film that I saw recently was The 49th Parallel, Powell and Pressburger film. And like all Powell and Pressburger films, super weird. It's just a very strange movie. And, you know, there's much made of the fact that Janet Lee was killed like 30 minutes into Psycho. This kills off one of the greatest film actors of all time in like the first 20 minutes Laurence Olivier who plays this completely spoiler alert jeez well come on this movie's come been on. this movie's been out for 70 years wow. Eric I'm not jeez. spoiling anything <laughs> can't believe it you're gonna, you're gonna get letters <laughs> but he like so Laurence Olivier plays this like absurd French Canadian fur trapper and he has like the worst accent. And then you're, you're like, oh my God, do I have to watch a whole movie of Laurence Olivier playing this weird character? No, you don't. And instead what you do. He makes his way entirely through the jazz singer, just as a recommendation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what you, what you do is you follow this group of Nazis who have crash landed into Canada. There's nothing endearing about them. They there are certain ones that remain completely abominable until the end. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating experiment in terms of like what films are. Highly recommended. I finished all of Horace and Pete, which is <laughs> Louis C.K.'s actually very extraordinary ten part play that he had made for his own website, but is now streaming on Hulu. I thought that it was surprising in every way it's extremely sophisticated storytelling amazing cast includes jessica lang super semi edie falco um laurie metcalf laurie metcalf like it's just it, it touches on every possible issue about america today that you think it would from unapologetically the point of view of a straight white male and does it in an extremely sophisticated way i absolutely adored it um, and I will say that I, I just got back from Hot Docs, where I had the privilege of being on the mid-lengths jury. And uh, I was thrilled to be on the mid-lengths jury because it's sort of, I wouldn't say it's my favorite form, but it's my favorite form to champion. Because if you have made a 45-minute film 
it's a good chance that you really think that your film should be 45 minutes because you are neither a short nor a feature and you probably have no distribution. So the fact that you are making films at that length, I think is exemplary because, and, 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 and the films in the competition certainly bore that out. And I just wanted to just mention the two films we rewarded. And I think they're both fantastic. One actually is seeming to get some sort of distribution and I'm curious to see how it's going to get out there. Um, cause Annapurna, um, got involved with it, which is uh, Death in the Terminal, this Israeli film that uses mostly uh, surveillance footage of a terrorist attack in Israel and makes a Rashomon story out of that footage. Mm-hmm. And the other one fo- is a film called The Lives of Therese, um, which is about an unbelievable, amazing uh, a French woman who's, in the course of 45 minutes, you basically the film starts off with her telling the filmmaker, I'm dying and you need to make a film about me dying. That's your just your job now, mm. and him taking her up on that, and you find out about her story and her, about her being a mother and her being a basically a fit woman who becomes a feminist in May '68, and her absolutely changing her life entirely, her changing her sexuality, her changing her way of approaching parenthood, and becoming this 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 this, this remarkable person and her complicated relationship with her children while you're watching her fail physically. I thought you were going to say it was a movie about Therese Bellovet and Carol. <laughs> That's all I can We're always hoping for that. <laughs> I would watch that. Phyllis uh, Nagy, if you're listening. <laughs> Speaking of mid-lengths, I saw for the second time Arthur Jaffa's Dreams Are Colder Than Death that was playing at BAM's um, Migrating Forms Festival. And it blew me away more than it did the first time. I think I had mentioned it in a previous piece I did for Film Comment on I'm Not Your Negro. And there's... I was really surprised by how moved I was because in a sense there's nothing terribly special about what it does visually or even about the audio that is overlaid on it, but something about the pacing, something about what these people uh, were sharing from their lives um, was very powerful to, powerful to me. And another film that I, I was blown away by that I should have seen long ago, but was catching up with um, was The Color of Pomegranates, Mm, um, which really blew me away. I did not realize that Madonna had stolen or Mark Romanek had stolen so many images from it. But in terms of it relates to musicals in a way, too. I mean, all the surfaces and it's incredible. Yeah bow down all other gay Georgian filmmakers of that time. But thank you for coming. This was <laughs> thank wonderful. You for having us. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Violet. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>